Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Trevor. And together, we're We're Occasionally Interesting, interesting. the podcast where a couple travels the world interviewing the most interesting people they meet along the way. Sometimes it will be sweet. Often entertaining. Rarely conservative. Frequently informative. Occasionally occasionally interesting. Occasionally interesting. Occasionally interesting. They are occasionally interesting. Okay, I guess you have two quests. One that you've been working on and one that you're currently embarking on. Mm-hmm. So, I, which would you like to start talking about? What you've been doing or what you're about to be doing? Okay. So what does bring you here to Chiang Mai? The Digital Nomads Conference, actually. Oh. Um, several times, Dean has asked me to come. Why don't you come? Why don't you come? And I've said, hmm... And it's about the money because I want the money, obviously, to go in certain directions. Like there's only so many dollars to be spent. Um, and I, then when he sent me the link, and I said, "Oh, now I've got the actual real reason to come," and then I'll put some extra days on so that we spend some time together and catch up. So the journey that I'm on now is actually to do digital storytelling. So over the years, everyone said to me, "Christine, get out of the kitchen." Um, because I like being in the kitchen. I'm more of a background person, even though I'm supposed to be the front of the business. <laughs> I will always push my share for my trainees. And um, and I thought, I like this idea of, I mean, I love food and I love travel. And it was, how can I make this pay? Instead mm-hmm. of all, the, all of it coming out of my pocket and then <laughs> having a tax deduction, how can I actually derive income? So how can I get a commercial aspect to it? Still haven't worked that bit out. But um, so under a new uh, business name of Taste of Living, so that encapsulates anything to do with food and travel. Um, So when I travel, I always connect with chefs or I do simple cooking classes um, or go to a cooking class, but not the commercial ones. And it started, that journey started two years ago when I wanted to go and stay in Venice for five weeks. And a friend, a long-term school friend from the UK said to me, I know an Italian businessman. And I've gone, oh. So he put me in touch. This guy is a multi-millionaire. And he gave me, he gifted me, I should say is a better word, gifted me his apartment for five weeks. Nice. Including internet, absolutely everything. He traveled three hours to meet me in Venice, to walk me to the apartment, and I was for sure thinking I was going to get lost. Um, (laughs) And that was what started, so I took my laptop, and that was my beginning of starting to think more about the bigger world of food in a more commercial sense, as in, you know, I can get more pleasure out of this. So it goes back that far. So over the time we're talking with Dean has been the development of how do I combine all my skills and knowledge and then travel? And so that's where Taste of Living came from. Quite generic, but it encompasses everything that I, I like. like. it. And we can certainly relate. You know, we have uh, feel like people travel for different reasons. And one of the reasons that we travel, and one of the reasons why we pick Thailand is we travel for food. We, mm. go, we go where we think the best food's going to be. And, and that's really how we see a place and get to know a place is through the food. And the, I think you can really experience a culture through its food. Oh, definitely. So we, you know, we, we always 
research. Jen, I should say, researches uh, <laughs> wherever we're going. You know, she's got a list of the best fresh, you know. Um, and that would be fantastic to be able to monetize the, all that work that we put in. To, Even if you could just monetize a part of it, I'm not necessarily. But then talking with Dean, I've said, oh, maybe I could approach those people. Maybe there's some sponsorship or they'll pay for the internet connection or something like that, you know. Um, so the talking has been really great. And that's what I thought the conference would be really good is about meeting so many different people who are already doing mm-hmm. what I want to do. I've always been tech challenged. I'm not saying that anymore. I'm saying now I'm embracing tech nice. and I'm getting a lot better. Um, but I need... I need to stabilize it mm-hmm. and to get a few bits of the right equipment. And the aim is to go and talk to people. They've got everyone's got a story. And I'm about home cooks, you know, um, local, local food, uh, in season only, mm-hmm. um, and basic cooking. Nothing out of bottles or packets. Um, so that's why going to the market yesterday was just superb because you know I actually stood there and watched the lady make my green mango salad. Mm-hmm. You know, brought it back. Um, so yeah, I mean the markets were just sensational. Um, so again, that's why I was saying earlier I got lots of footage, you know, lots of short, and then cut them all back into short videos because I realised that I have got so much. Um, uh, footage to use as promos to actually kick off what I want to do. Um, plus we've got videos and everything from what I've been doing over the last couple of years. So it's about going and talking to these people and it could be a social enterprise, it could be a homeless kitchen, it doesn't matter but it's about that story because everyone's got a story. It could be a you know a grandma, uh, it doesn't matter who it is but they've all got a story so cooking with their local produce something in season and if they don't well I will encourage them to and then tell their story and then put it in a digital format and form this like library I suppose um, that's as far as I've thought about it but then practice in Australia because I want to do it in a camp event so ultimately what I want to do is go to the UK buy a basic camper van not one of these really great Winnebago's that cost a fortune <laughs> and then hit the road in the UK do the same thing in the UK then go across to Italy, and I've got someone in the south of France who has said, "Come this way." So that's amazing. That sounds absolutely. Again, we are. Uh, this is basically <laughs> our life plan. <laughs> yes, uh, we have plans in the future. We've got a couple of things that need to happen beforehand, but we mm. want to do basically the same exact thing, except start in Canada and sort of work down the west coast of the United States and into into. Hopefully, if we can make it all the way down to South America, that would be great. Yes. Uh, but you know, we travel to eat, so <laughs> kind of doing eating our way down from Canada, <laughs> Canada south. Well, I've been I went three uh, three times to Italy in the space of about nine months, always to Venice. So I went back and spent more time because what I've done is kept the connections. So mm. the local chef, I had him into the apartment to cook local produce and talk mm. to me. He doesn't speak much Italian uh, English. And everything is in Italian is hilarious. <laughs> Actually, especially tr- me trying to tell him some stories about my youth. It was around peas. Because in Australia, we don't eat fresh peas. They're expensive and they're time-consuming. You can't be bothered. But when I grew up in the UK, we grew up with growing peas. <laughs> and so I was trying to tell him about, because one of the dishes was a pea risotto. And I was trying to explain, you know, about this when I was this small and, you know, 
and uh, it was just hilarious. I think out of the whole time he was there, that was probably the best 20 minutes. <laughs> it was just so funny. Um, so I kept the connection with him and he, his family has a fruit shop. I've always been in fruit. Um, so yeah, it's I've maintained all the connections. So each time I go back and then I extend and then I find someone else. So went up the mountain, same mountains twice, went for the cherry festival and then the uh, chestnut festival. Hmm. So again, so authentic, basic, and that's what Italians do, which is very, it joins very well with my heritage of being growing up in the UK, which was, you know, I was born in the 50s. So I was nine before we got our first fridge. We didn't need them because we had cold lighters. That's mm. what Italians do. You know, so the, the connection, I could never understand why the connection, I had this drive to be in Italy and do everything Italian. I'm like, I even use my hands. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, and I think it's that base, you know, that really grassroots. Yeah. Do you speak any Italian? A little. Um, I did learn and I uh, used to go to, back in those days, I was eating out five days a week, five nights a week and uh, always went to the same Italian restaurant and they would never let me order in English. So whatever mm. I'd learnt in Italian, I had to, and then they would just encourage me. I don't mind making an idiot of myself. You know, <laughs> I, I'm quite easy, happy to laugh at myself and if that's entertaining for everyone else, that's <laughs> um, So then I dropped it and bit by bit, it comes back, but I've just picked up now and, um, but working with a guy who's working on conversational, I'm not into grammar. I'm, yeah, don't want to know about that. Um, I cannot basically get it right if I'm writing, um, but it's more about conversation. But my impediment is my Australian accent. Oh, really? So I sound like a Interesting. Stick, no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So you said that you you have stories of uh, from childhood of your relationship to food. When did food start being this uh, driving force of your life and? What has been your relationship to food throughout your life? I suppose when I when I look back, so my father was in um, the Royal Marines, British Services. So we moved around, but we didn't move around a lot. A lot of them move every two years. We were lucky we didn't do that. Um, and so my mum and dad always grew some veggies in the garden, not a lot. But in the UK, um, families have allotments so you've only got small gardens they put the lawn in have the flowers and then they have an allotment and that's where they grow all their veggies and it's like a very <laughs> strong community um i have a girlfriend from my school days who still has an allotment with her husband um, my aunt and uncle run um, a beautiful garden all veggies grass on one side but the rest is all veggies they have the most amazing uh, reoccurring asparagus patch and she <laughs> bottles and cooks so basic, she's all very basic. Um, so that's what I grew up with. And then from my parents' philosophy was when you come spending money, so put food on the, good food on the table, roof over your head, pay the bills, and whatever's left is what you can play with. Whereas now today, society is the opposite. And admittedly, I've shifted across from that philosophy. <laughs> However, the pivot for my family and when I had my kids, was good food on the table first and home cooking. Mm. My kids would not eat even a, a, ca a cake <coughs> or a pie from a bakery because I brought them up to eat home. 
and of that uh, I've got two kids. My daughter cooked, she was a single mum, so she cooked mainly from necessity, um, but she, she doesn't have a real passion for cooking. My son became a chef, he started mm. cooking at four, um, and of my four grandkids, three cook. Wow. And the, other, the oldest one, no, he's a, he's a cool dude, you know, <laughs> surfy guy, and no, 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 we don't cook. <laughs> um, but so that philosophy I've just maintained and what I do today is is just keep that forward thinking and take everything back, you know. So it's about, for me, it's about showing people how to cook simply, um, get rid of all the, the packets uh, and all the tins and everything else that has just flooded us, you know, the, the sources. And I know I went through a period where I did that. But I come back and I say, no, only olive oil now, butter, no margarine. Look what's in margarine. You know, think about it. Think about the sugar content, etc., um, and come back to basics. And so all I really do in reality these days is teach people that, but with a passion. And then the added bit that I did when I set up the kitchen nine years ago was about reducing food waste. Um, because I didn't actually understand how pe- how much waste was there because I don't waste a lot. I'm not perfect, but um, there was this whole cycle, you know, there was a garbage bin, I'm sorry, a, a um, compost, compost pitch, uh, compost box, and then um, did worms for quite a few years as well. Um, had animals, so chooks and everything. So everything had a life, uh, nothing went in the bin. Um, so when I set up the kitchen, it was like, well, that has to be what we build the kitchen around. And I did it, mm. not because I thought about it. To me, that's the way you do it. And council came in one day and after about nine months and said, tell us about what you're actually doing. And they turned around then and said, you're the only triple bottom line business in our council area. And I was astounded. What does that mean exactly? So that means it's about... Um, people, profit, and planet. Mm. Whereas a lot of it's more about profit. So most places are profit driven. And I was saying, well, I do have a commercial hat on. Um, I've got to sustain. So I've never had a government grant. I've never had free money, except for a few small businesses have said, give us your bank account. Um, it's all been about fee for service um, so that we were sustainable. So even though even as a not-for-profit, people say, oh, yeah, you know, you rely on volunteers, you rely on grant money. And I said, no, I pay the people that work for me. I have some volunteers, but they're committed to what I believe in because they do the same. Um, And I don't rely on grant money. That's why for nine years, as you know, I'm still operating. I'm going to say people, planet, and profit. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a very sustainable model. See, you know, put the... The profit in there, and it depends on who I'm talking to as to which, you know, what order you say. Then. <laughs> well, it is because if I'm talking to, you know, a CEO of a, a big company, they're all about profit. Right. But I put it in the right context depending on who I'm talking. It's just you just change the language a little bit depending on what it is you want from that person. <laughs> yeah, I think. I mean, I think too often people, companies can get too singularly, singular, singularly focused. Mm. Uh, and if you don't have the profit aspect of it, then it's not going to be. You can't perpetuate it, and then then you lose the people and the planet in the process. <laughs> right. 
which is not good. I think in the I think in the states the statistic is that we waste north of fifty percent of our food that's grown, mm. which you know we have a huge agricultural sector, so we're wasting a lot of food. And I worked in hospitality and restaurants for years, and I mean when I would watch how much food was thrown out, I mean if one if a piece of lettuce has a brown spot on it, that was going straight. And they, they would send it back. I don't know what the company, you know, they, they got reimbursed for how much weight they sent back to the produce spots. But I, I, don't, I hope that that was being composted at the very least. You know, but it was probably like, not. probably not. Honestly, probably not. I would be very surprised if it was. Uh, and to see that waste was just, I mean, yeah, the waste in the restaurant industry in the States is absolutely appalling. I, I think that's worldwide. Um, in the UK, there was a company that set up uh, a model. It was um, an app where a restaurant could measure its waste from from the product that was delivered. So if you think of meat, how much is cut off before they have that perfect portion um, to the lettuce leaf that you mentioned. Um, so that part of the waste and then the waste um, in the cook or the reduction in the cooking and then the waste on the plates that came back. So there were three hmm. measure, three ways to measure. And I talked to several cafes and restaurants in Australia saying, you know, we can put this together. It's actually really easy. We just have three bins. You don't have to do anything else. And at the end of the day, you weigh them. And they said, we don't care hmm. what comes back off the plates. And I said, hmm. So I said, well, that's portion control. Well, no, we've costed all that in. And I said, well, there's two things here. You could actually make more profit you know, if, if every plate's coming back with, say, a spoon of carrots left on it, then isn't that telling you you're putting too many carrots on there? So take the carrots off, so there's one saving, or, you know, you you, you reduce, keep the price the same, and you, you've got a better profit margin. And they do not want to know what comes back off the plates. And I was astounded, whereas when we cook in our kitchen, I was teaching everyone, that all my trainees was, about portion control and maybe Christine you're banging on about portion control and I said this this re-. and I would do the numbers <laughs> on a whiteboard and show them oh that was like too deep a thinking it was yeah. it was really interesting wow yeah yeah and then I mean the psychology of it like yeah it's especially I've worked in a lot of corporate restaurants as well where I would assume that they, you know, it's about perception of value for the customer. So even if they're wasting food, but they felt like they got a good value, even they're throwing out twenty percent of it, like it's, you know, it's it's a it's a two sided problem there. It's you know the the customer as well as the corporation where changing the perception of what you think value is 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 important on a cost customer side and yeah but everybody knows that the fancier the restaurant the smaller the portions that's right, that's you know, right. That. yes it was interesting my daughter had a, a friend who opened a a country pub and the portion size on his meals were huge yeah um and everyone was saying great portion size you know it's just come out feeling so full and I and I said to him if you just took it and I looked and I ate there several times whenever I went back to South Australia and I said to him you know if you took off six peas and two pieces of carrot and a piece of this and a piece of that but leave your schnitzel for instance the same size nobody's going to know any different take off four chips and he just looked at me 
And I said, but you'll make better profit. Yeah. You're saying that your profit margins aren't there. And I said, at that stage, I couldn't do numbers. I can do numbers now, but this was a long time ago. And I said, if you just do this, you will actually make more money. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes I think I'm in the wrong business, but at the same time, uh, it's also easy for me to work in the arena I am and talk about those things. I mean, yeah, I think it's, I've been also working with food more on the uh, marketing side of things and sustainability. Uh, and it's just wild to see how emotional people get, like these emotional blockages where they're just unwilling to listen to reason or science or profit, anything. It's just, they put up this wall. I mean, yeah, how have you, have you found ways around that the longer that you're in this industry? Have you found ways to talk to people where they can get their let their guards down a bit about food? Um, sometimes, but again, it comes back to when I say, depending on which which part of the, the story that I'm telling as to which one I concentrate on, to see, and I watch their body language. Um, having worked with the long-term unemployed for a long time, I'm very good at watching body language. Um, I don't know the science of body language, it's just I watch, and if I can see it glazing over, I have to change tact. Um, or the what, looking at the body whether they're relaxed or not, but um, I've given—I'll be honest—I've given up trying to really beat a drum if they're really not interesting, interested, because otherwise, all I'm doing is getting wound up. Mm-hmm. And if they really don't want to listen, then what's the point? You know, either keep subtly bringing it into the conversation each time I meet them or whatever. But no, even my daughter says, "Mum, just don't do it." <laughs> Yeah. You please do not do it. Okay. I think that there is an attitude change. I mean, the amount of locally grown farm-to-table type establishments that have been popping up, I, I, I believe, if, I don't have any statistics to back this up, but it seems like this is increasing as a trend, which... Absolutely, it is. Yeah, that, I mean, and that, I think that's a very, very positive thing. Yeah. I agree, and it is in Australia and in the UK very much so. But it's, it's still, that movement still doesn't, to me, have depth. Mm. It's still really quite superficial, and I mean that in the numbers mm. that are actually really following that trend. Or their drive is more about their profit and their reputation mm-hmm. as opposed to living what they're talking about. And that's the difference. I, I'm not driven by it. I don't want this great reputation. I don't want to be standing out there. Um, it's about doing to me, that's where that, that sense of what I'm doing is doing right because that's what I believe in, not because someone says, oh, isn't she fantastic? Whereas a lot of them, if you think of, um, of uh, well-known chefs, I'm sure you've got them in the States, just like we have them uh, in Australia, uh, in the UK as well. And it's all about beating their chests and like, oh, fantastic, <laughs> look, I'm heading up this. You know, I would then say, yeah, but what do they do at home? Mm. You know, you don't hear about what they do at home or what they really do in their kitchen. Whereas all I talk about is what I really do. Could you tell us more about the kitchen? That Certainly. Um, so I opened up the kitchen nine years ago and I did that because I was working in... Um, employment services, so in Mm. in Australia, and I'm sure you've got it in the US as well, where people who are long-term unemployed have to actually do some voluntary work 
No, oh. we do not have that. Oh, I okay. wish. That sounds sense, amazing. <laughs> well, that's interesting. So UK huh. and Australia have a very similar model for people wow. who are long-term unemployed. Long-term unemployed used to mean five plus years. Now it is one year plus. Wow. And so... So who's keeping track of this? Oh, the government. And how do they enforce that you do volunteer work? Oh, it's all computerized. You don't get, you don't get your benefits. And, and you don't get your benefits. How do you know about this? You're just, I just guessing? I assume that, yeah. yeah. You're going to make somebody go no, that, volunteer. That's exactly right. You're giving them money. You're this this is brilliant. Money. No, I've never heard about this no, program before. I never have either. That, Okay. It makes a lot of sense. It makes so much sense. I mean, just in terms of, I mean, not only what they're giving back to the society, but what that does for the individual. Because when, I mean, I've, we know many long-term unemployed people, and if they had a purpose and a community and something to do, how much easier it would be for them to then get a job because they, cause you start losing sight of yourself when you're feeling like you're not offering value to the world, it seems. Totally. That's um, amazing. I, I want this program and <laughs> worldwide. That makes it's, it's so much sense. It's a to get out of bed. So the, so the UK and the Australian model are very similar and the rules and regulations around it are very similar as well, even though they do change every three to five years, mm -hmm. depending on what the new tender process is. Um, but the bottom line is you register as unemployed and you receive, uh, we call it your doll money, every fortnight, and it just goes straight into your bank account. But there are rules, you actually sign um, a contract with the government, and then you're referred to a private enterprise, which is employment, now employment services, and you go in and sign another agreement, so that means you have to rock up for an appointment every two weeks. And you have to do a whole um, bunch of other things like resumes, and you have to attend so many job interviews or make so many uh, job applications every fortnight. Wow. That's the base. Then when you reach a certain point, and it depends on your age and some of your background and some of your circumstances. So there's, there's lots of um, different parts to everyone not it's not a one-size-fits-all um, and so then let's say you're long-term unemployed you have no disability um, and there's no reason why you, you can't go to work that's the assumption however people who have been long-term unemployed have multiple barriers to work a lot of them being they no longer socialize you know they're introverted the, the whole works and they've just lost that as you said that whole sense of self and sense of being. So the work for the doll program that the government brought in gave them a reason to get out of bed every day because as you said, they don't get their benefits. So again, depending on age, circumstances, background, you do between two and four days a week and it's nine to four or it's about seven hours, like a working day. Mm. Um, I set up the kitchen because I was working in the system with people and there were too many roadblocks and the companies are very profit-minded and the money wasn't going where it should go, I believed, to helping people get back into work. So I'd set up a couple of things like breakfast clubs, you know, and that was not part of my job, but I could see that we needed to work on social skills. It's hard enough to get a job, it's even harder to keep a job if you've been out of work for a period of time. Um, and I went, I think I've had enough and so I quit my job and I went to one of the major employment services and I said, I have this idea, I want to use a kitchen and um, a herb garden. 
I need premises, I need a kitchen to do this. And the whole idea is that I teach people to cook and do, and but in the meantime, I will also uh, coach them on interview skills, their resume, even though the other side of the equation is already supposed to be done, but in reality, people slip through the crack. Mm -hmm. So um, this company took it to the government and the government said, yes, work experience program, or we called it work for the doll. I hated that expression, it's very derogatory. Whereas to me, work experience is so generic that I could then say that people were working for me um, without actually saying that, but I'd be able to give them a reference, a new reference, because a lot of people hadn't worked for so long. There was no referees on their resume. Yeah. So that was automatically a barrier. A company wouldn't even interview them. And so I set up the kitchen and most of my um, work for the doll participants were middle-aged men and came with attitude on top of everything. Why should I have to do this? You've got free labor. And there's a big argument for that and I can understand that. But I said, but you're not doing it for me. You're not making me money. We're actually doing it for the community. So taught them to cook, just basic, simple stuff, mainly English food, because that's what I, my background, and soups. And a lot of them, you know, had not had a home-cooked meal for so long because they believed that takeaway food was cheaper. Hmm. But then I talked to them about, well, you know, even the buns in the takeaway have actually sugar in them, so that's why you're addicted and that's why you keep going back. So if we break it up in with soup, let's just do soup and casseroles. Just really simple stuff. Um, then they, they lost the attitude because then they could see that I was actually on their side. And I had a really good success rate that for five years, um, anything up to 40 of them in a week. Um, with an 80, what was it? I think it was 83% success rate of people get, getting people into sustainable work. That sounds like a phenomenal success rate. It was, but it was the attention to detail and the time. So I was very person-centered. And that's what the big programs don't have. They can't afford to. So people are thinking profit. So for me, it was like, here's a budget. These are my overheads. Cover this. And that's how I operate. So that's how I started. And then I brought a chef on board. He was referred to me. Um, like-minded and we just forged for four and a half years we walked to work together and people just said we were like a husband and wife team because we well, we were spending four days a week together and we were just finishing each other's sentences it was just really funny <laughs> and we developed a um, seasonal jam range so we worked <laughs> with surplus produce from the supermarkets um, for six years in total and then I flipped and changed my thought process but um, we would get we would deal with eight anything up to 800 kilos of fresh fruit and veg wow. every week so where was all this food going when are you after so it was what prepared we, did, we sorted it um, and then we would cook it and yeah cook it into the meals and then the meals that we cooked went to the community so then we started opening the door on a Thursday because to me, you can put food in front of people, but you're only, it's only one part of the equation. The other part is the social isolation. Mm -hmm. So if you're a long-term unemployed, you don't go out, you don't socialize. Um, pensioners, single parents, they don't have the money. They don't go to cafe, they don't go to cafes and have coffee like mm. we do. They don't do it. They just can't afford to. So it was open the doors and it was a, um, 
just a gold coin donation. In Australia, we have uh, one and two dollar coins. Um, and it was just, you know, donate if you can afford it. And if you can't, it doesn't matter. We just had a donation tin. Didn't monitor it. Mind you, there were one or two that we did start monitoring and I was starting to have a few words because they were just really pushing the boundaries when I knew that they were self-funded retirees. Hmm. I'm sorry, don't put 20 cents in when you're a self-funded retiree. <laughs> you know, you're living a really good lifestyle. And that to me was um, really de denigrating to the other people who would say, I wish I could give you more. Yeah. So those that couldn't spend money, didn't have the money, um, or would put in, say, a couple of dollars, and say, I wish I could give you more. And I said, you give me more. And they said, what do you mean? I said, you walk in the door, you always have a smile on your face, you always give me a hug. Do you not realise what that does to my day? Aww. Oh, didn't even think about that. And I said, you do. You always have a co good conversation. You want to have a conversation instead of just pushing me or any of my people aside. That is what you also give and you can't put a monetary value on that. Mm. So we started that in, uh, I think it was open about nine months and we continued that. Well, I had our last one uh, for the year on December 12th last year. We usually do three or four events a year where we then charge um, a specific amount, but we put in um, entertainment. So we have a lot of fixed um, additional costs, but people will pay because it's, it's not really about the food, it's about the social socialising. So it's about sharing a meal around a table. Most people who are isolated, no matter what their age is, they all have something on a plate in front of the television. They don't even think about the food they're eating. So for me, it was come in, sit down, and then share the food, have some conversation, make some friends, have a laugh, and put up with a lot of bad dad jokes. <laughs> my, my local men um, <laughs> We have a... Um, in Australia uh, and in the UK, they have a very strong men's shed culture. So these are men that have retired, but still have a lot to give. They're mainly tradies and they do community work. Wow. Um, and so we have one close one to me and I've known them probably eight, eight and a half years when they shifted a coffee machine for me. Um, and they come to lunch every Thursday. Um, over the years, I've changed from the gold coin donation to pay what you can afford because I wanted them to really appreciate the food. So when we made the switch, I actually told the story why we were making the switch. I said, the money's irrelevant, but what I want you to do is think about the food, think about where it come from, and think about the people who cooked it for you. So for six years, I had the long-term unemployed and I became very mentally weary dealing with so many different um, personalities and needs and wants it was like I need I need to change this up because I'm losing energy and I'm losing the desire to actually go to work now mm. um, and a, a training company approached me and said would you like to work with um, high school students with intellectual learning disabilities and I said tell me more and so for the last two years I've worked with um, in Australia, we call them VCAL students. So they're the last three years of high school. They all have intellectual and learning disabilities, plus maybe depression, plus a defiance disorder. <laughs> and I hate to say it, but also their families can actually be their biggest disability mm. that hold them back. Um, 
and I've lost where I was going with that. But anyway, What's the, what do they do the last three years of high school? Yeah, so they they come to me for two days a week, and they're still at high school for the last three days, and they get uh, a qualification. So last year I worked with the year tens and elevens, um, and they did a cert two in food processing. The emphasis is not on the certificate; it's about experience. So they cooked, and then they would serve. So we did front of house and back of house training. So it was all about communication skills, um, building their confidence, um, learning to have conversations with people that they didn't know. Because parents with kids with disabilities tend to cosset them and they don't, they don't let them out into the big wide world. So I was felt very honoured and very humble the fact that they trusted their kids to me. Unfortunately, some really wanted some miracles to happen. So they said, oh, I hope you can do this. And I'm going, wait a minute. You know, they're 16 years old and you haven't done it and you want me to perform a miracle in 12 months. I can't do that, but this is what I will do. Um, so I had 15 last year and they then moved on and they've gone on to do other things. And then this last year, I worked with the year 12s, which is the very last year of high school. So again, they had uh, intellectual learning disabilities. One had the defiance disorder. And then they all have a level of ment um, less than optimal mental health, um, lack of confidence. Two of last year came back and did the certificate three in catering operations. Mm -hmm. Again, the emphasis being on hygiene, cooking, this basic simple food, and then serving people. So they learnt real cafe skills. And uh, even the, the young guys would say, but I want to work in the food industry. I said, no, but you want to be an apprentice plumber or you want to go into carpentry. As an apprentice, you earn minimal money. This will give you a way of actually earning some extra money, especially um, the refugees. Both years I've had three refugees from um, Burma. Oh. And so their disability was actually their lack <coughs> of English, but also the trauma involved you know, leaving their country. The things mm. that they saw um, was really interesting because I really had to think about some of the things I said mm. so I didn't trigger um, a memory. Uh, it was quite a challenge, but it was really good. They were awesome Aww. people in the kitchen. Mm. Wow. So is, is this program still going or are you stopping it as you move on um, to your new project? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm waiting for the training company to come back and say we have enough. I only need eight um, that will cover all the costs plus give us some movement to be able to maybe buy some equipment or do um, a day trip out. Mm -hmm. um, I've been talking to a couple of corporates. One of them um, makes uh, kitchen appliances, anything to do with the kitchen, and they want to look at um, some programs. But then, you know, they've had a change of accountant and a change of mm -hmm. this, and so then everything slows down. Yeah. Um, I did start doing what I call community food workshops, so I like to call them cooking classes. So I was dealing with people, again, they were really socially isolated, and I just threw out these ideas of, do you want to come in and do solo cooking, or do you want to do sugar-free cooking? Tell me. And I charged um, Australian $10, Basically, it covered the ingredients. Um, my time didn't matter because it was community orientated. And the comments I got was, oh, I'm so pleased I found you. I'm not teaching them anything. These are people the same age as me who cook. They cook at home. 
So what's it about? It's the social isolation. You know, someone who they can have a conversation with, run for two hours, and then they whatever they could, they took home. So I will continue that this year. I've already had people's emailing. So can I come to this? And I said, well, I actually haven't set the shit yet <laughs> because my head is actually in a different space from that point of view. But the other thing I did was switch from working with um, surplus produce from the supermarkets. Um, I get why they were talking about, about reducing food waste. But you know what the reality is all they're doing is shifting the cost and the responsibility of dumping this food onto a third party interesting so i mean i'm only a little person and i really drove that whole reducing food waste in our area but then i looked at how much time i was spending sorting you know anywhere i said between 400 and 800 kilos of fresh produce every week and it comes in and you have to sort it before you can do anything with it. So we would sort, and what we didn't need, we used to put on what I call a community table, and then people could take, anyone that came into the center could take it. Wow. If they could give me a donation, that would be good. And I tell them the money goes into the kitchen because we yeah. have fixed costs. There are things that we don't get through that, that surplus system. And when I really thought about it, oh, the reason why I changed my mind was because the major charities there are three major charities in australia and they charge the supermarkets to pick the produce up so okay i get mm. that but then they're getting government funding to run their business so okay i can i can see a bit of a balance here and then it was well now if you want this you have to come pick it up or there's a cost and one group actually charge per pallet and i go no no, no wait a minute I'm actually doing you a favour here. Yes, it's, to me it's a two-way street. And now you want to charge me. And i I be honest, I got really annoyed. And then looked at the whole food waste situation. And I said, well, actually what we need to do is actually go back to the beginning, which is actually the farm gate. Because along the way, the farmer's being screwed. They're screwed by corporations, by the supermarkets, by the system. So, so all right, no, you can keep all your food waste, I am going to go back the other way, I'm going to deal direct with a couple of farmers where I can, or local suppliers and go and negotiate a fair price and buy everything. And I've been doing that for the last two years. Mm. What that did, put two days a week back in my in my week. Two wow. whole wow. days. Nice. <laughs> you know, so by the time you think it's an hour here, two hours there, it's an <laughs> unknown cost. All of a sudden, I had this free time, and that's when I started thinking about what else can I do? Wow. Wow, that's amazing. That's, who would have thought? Sounds like a very profit-effective approach to get money from the government, money from the supermarkets, and then sell the produce that you're receiving. Yes, and they would say that I couldn't sell the produce. And I said, but I don't sell this surplus produce. Well, you do because you take money. And I said, only if people want to donate. I said, they're not... Donate. They're donating for the kitchen because they believe or not. Again, this is where the spin comes off. Wait, hold on. Today you said that you wouldn't, you couldn't, the same, the, and this was the people giving you the food that was char charging the government, charging the supermarkets. Yes. and We're saying that you, selling you the food, saying you couldn't sell the food? That's correct. Could only give it away. And I say, but what about if I can just recuperate, recoup the costs? So the pallet costs, my 
transport costs because there was my time, there was fuel, tolls on the on the motorway because it was the other side of town for those where I had to pick up. No, 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 you can't even do that. Oh, well, someone, wait a minute, someone somewhere has to cover these costs. Your costs are covered, why can't I? And it was written in, in the agreements. You couldn't do that. Wow. Why do you think that is? Protectionism, I call it. I don't know, that's my opinion. It sounds like a supermarket, supermarket lobbies to me. You know, if you know you can get this cheaper produce from somebody other than the supermarket, and that, like, I wouldn't be surprised. I know, wasn't it not the case at, at the company that you worked for that rhymes with whole schmoods? <laughs> that, uh, it was considered theft to, to take yep. home produce that was going to be thrown out? Yep. Um, and I assume that that has to do with they wanted you to buy the produce, yep. <laughs> rather than just oh I'll just wait a day and that cheese will go on the on the chopping block and, and then instead of <laughs> in Australia, uh, especially it started from uh, a time when someone was noticing how much food was going into dumpsters, so then people would dump dumpster diving, and then the supermarket said oh no you can't do that. We said well why can't they do it? Well a they're trespassing. And so then they started push, um, putting bowls of bleach all through the food, just tipping the bleach on top so nobody... What? And it was, it was all that whole, no, 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 you can't do that. And that was, a, that was the pivot, I believe, in Australia when more and more people, especially with social media, that's to me is the upside of social media, started photographing you know, employees dumping all this food. Um, and then so then out of... That movement was born in in Melbourne, three charities. And I find it, none of the three charities are sustainable. They all rely on government funding and volunteers. Um, and they fight over the same pool of money. Hmm. Now, somewhere along the line, two of those have to disappear. And they have tightened their operations. And one of them was people, small people like me. Well, no, you can't do that. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, hmm. but there were smaller people than me, um, little communities where there might be six people um, up a hill, if you like, and um, the one person that was collecting food was on a disability pension, so you know restricted income would go and pick up all the food, then bring it back, and they would dish it out amongst them, and they they would do that out of their at the goodness of their heart, and then one of these charities said, oh no. We're not going to do that now. Um, no, we're going to pull all our vans off the road. Comes into a central point. If you want it, you have to come here and pick it up. Well, you're talking, you know, one person having to run their car, which they can't afford to do, to go pick up free food. And I actually did the sums, and I started talking to some of these smaller groups. I said, okay, let's do some sums, and I do the sums on the whiteboard. So it costs you this much. And let's discount your time. Just look at the cost of running your car. Petrol costs you this much. And you might get this and you might get that. Because that's the other side. You never knew what you were going to get. Mm. You could get a selection or you could get 40 kilos of cucumbers. <laughs> right? So that was, that was you know, the, the downside to using the surplus food. So you would travel. You would never know. You couldn't book. You couldn't ask for anything in particular. You got what you were given. That was... The attitude, well, you can't afford it. You just be grateful for what you can get. And I said, well, so what can you do with 40 kilos of 
uh, cucumbers and that's all you get mm. so I did figures and I said so if you get smart with your shopping so you look at your supermarkets when do the specials go on what time of day what day and then pull that money that you're spending here and just do that and become a bit more self-sustaining and then look at doing some simple stuff in your garden within your restrictions and do that yeah, I think even as an individual approach, your model makes sense of, you know, like CSAs, like there's no real, real, no reason to buy produce from a supermarket if you are in, you know, throwing distance of a farm. Why not go and buy from them directly? You get fresher produce, you get cheaper and you know, you're not supporting this wasteful system. Mm. Like, um, but we've been, we've been um, conditioned. Absolutely. This is the way the world works, and this is the way you will work within the system. Mm -hmm. okay. and it's a hard thing to break out of and to, to get people to realize that they don't have to do that. Mm -hmm. And that it's better for them if they don't. You know, mm -hmm. they'll, they'll be happier. Definitely. <laughs> so what are you hoping to get out of Nomad Summit? Hoping for some connections to put together, uh, what was it I was asking for, Dean? Um, oh, a roadmap of how I put the new project together. So I know what I want to do, so I can do the literal hands-on I can do, but how can I then have a roadmap that makes it time, um, time efficient, which of obviously then will be cost efficient, um, and then get the maximum exposure for it um, so that then there's a the part of it that can be commercialized is attractive to a business that would want to do that or alternatively has something online um, a subscription maybe to my group um, I've started a small Facebook group um, but I don't know how to take that next step and so when Dean said about the, the conference and I said well if I really want to do this, rather than have someone say, oh, have we got the right course with the you, and I've had a few of those, and it will cost you $5,000, we will teach you, because that's what everybody does in the world now, we will coach you and we will teach you. And I thought, well, no, I'd actually rather go and I'd rather make some connections, because even though I want to do, initially while I'm playing around, the videoing myself and writing, um, I'm, I know where my skills are and they're definitely not in writing. I'm a very plain writer. I'm not, a, uh, what's the word, a, a really creative writer when using the English language. Um, and then maybe I'll also find some people that I can outsource to <laughs> because ultimately I can see, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to spend my time behind a computer. I want to spend my time with people. <laughs> um, so, so the combination there, A, someone that will help me put this roadmap together I know the posting I have to do, you know, putting the, the short videos together. I basically know how to do them. I've been doing them little bits at a time. But someone to show me so they make it a little bit more professional and then, then to be able to move across. And that's, again, why I need some commercial aspect to it to then pay people because I want to also I want to be doing videos. Um, I look at things and I'm frustrated. You know, like I think it took me two years to learn Canva without losing, wanting to throw my laptop against Aww. the wall. Because I found it, because it's slow uh, in interacting, 
I was just so frustrated. Oh. <laughs> so it's like there are people that just love that. Now, admittedly, I have mastered Canva, but I still don't want to be sitting there doing that. I might rather be out there doing and talking to people and then giving that to someone else. So yeah. that's, again, again, that's about a sustainable economy. Give someone else that work to do in time. Mm. Awesome. Well, we definitely have some people to introduce you to, I think. I've made a few connections on, on through Facebook um, since I joined up. So the, the um, attendees only Facebook group, yeah. so I'm part of that. And I've made some connections where people have logged in and said something. Nice. Um, I've gone, oh, yes, well, I'm going to be there. I'm arriving. We were going to go across the road last night um, for those you know, the, uh, social informal drinks. And then I said, you know, I'd really rather go and do the markets because I'm going to, get, you know, I'm going to do some other stuff. I'll see them all on Friday night or over the weekend. Yeah. So originally it was, let's go do the social. And I was like, uh, no, 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 I, I want some footage. I stopped by last night and I left promptly. Oh, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> you didn't miss anything. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I also thought realistically, I'm, pro- I'm going to be one of the older ones there and I don't want to get drunk. I'm yeah. Like, you know, that whole... <laughs> that whole scene now no I, I don't want to be it's more about making some really solid um, real connections um, that will be there long term and they're not going to be there over a beer Yeah. You know? I mean don't get me wrong I love to socialise but it was like I was thinking no and that's why we went to the, did the markets last night Why? wise choice again, stories, ideas and just Dean and I talking coming up with oh I hadn't thought about that and writing in my book very nice Um, is there anything else that you would like to add before yeah or any ways that people can support your endeavors what's your Facebook group name called Um, taste of living oh right okay I don't know where my phone is alright taste of living is the uh, new group Um, so I suppose initially is some guidance um, I know I'm not doing it all right. I'm to me, social media has always been a game. It's like, okay, let's see what works. So I found what works with my target markets as I've gone along over the years. Um, so yes, some definite guidance, some connections, more connections. Obviously, the more people you know, but what I call uh, connections with substance not just superficial. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, well, maybe uh, Dean and I were talking last night and all of a sudden he was talking about um, internet connection and I said, oh, wait a minute, write it down. Maybe there's an internet company or a telco that will support the longer term of this if they get given and they're the only one and they've got the rights. So I understand about, I don't believe in taking only, it's got to be a two-way street. So then what do they do? What can I offer them? So okay, class them as a sponsor and they get, you know, uh, credibility. Cool. (laughs) So you also are active on Twitter? Yes. What is your Twitter handle? Um, Taste of Living, but the other ones, you know, there's Roval Community Kitchen was the original one that I set up for the kitchen. And then the not-for-profit name is actually Recipe for Change with a number oh, four in the middle. I like that. And I I registered that also as the business name because it could mean 
to me it was portable it could go anywhere mm -hmm. it could mean anything to whatever yes for me it was about food but it doesn't have to be a food yeah. about food i could manipulate what i focused on but that twitter account is more about um social aspects internationally so there'll be a um there was a cheese company uh errington cheese company in scotland and they produce raw cheese been around that 25 or 30 years and all of a sudden somebody died of um listeria hmm. and the scottish health department blamed them and shut them down so they had about 30 or 40 people working for them so a small business but hugely popular but it was about the raw milk cheese was the issue mm -hmm. um, but they never proved uh, they closed them down they blamed them but there was no proof mm. that it happened from the cheese yeah. it's wow. terrible and yeah, so that's... for 18 months there was this battle and this happened someone highlighted it on twitter so i started following so then i started and as i was saying to you that i was just retweeting but only stuff that i believed in so the long uh, the short end of that story is there was enough support across Twitter for that company to take the Scottish Health Department to the High Court. Wow. And they won. Oh, because awesome. Because there was no evidence. Even all through that process, they could not produce evidence to say they were responsible. Their product was responsible. They could find nothing wrong with any of their factory wow. processes. Way to go, Twitter. And so they won. Yeah. $500,000 compensation and still the government, uh, the Scottish Health Department would not take off the ban legally, wow. like it was still on their website. Yeah, no. And even after that, but it, they won eventually. Now the Health Department have actually got another company in their sites. So to me, that's a real bonus. I knew nothing about them, but then I started interacting. Okay, so where can I buy your cheese? Do we have it in Australia? No. Okay, well, I'm coming to UK. Where can I find your cheese? So I can go and buy your cheese as opposed to a French cheese. Yeah. I love French cheese. <laughs> it's like, no, no, no. Let's, let's do this. Yeah. That's awesome. And a yeah. um, chocolate company. The son is autistic. The parents set up a handmade gluten-free chocolate company wow. and um, I thought oh that's interesting started to follow them and it was all built around this sun they only employ people um, mm. on the spectrum and they produce these beautiful chocolates so when my uncle turned 80 who um, has a gluten intolerance I ordered chocolates from there and sent them oh that's awesome so again it's about promote but promoting them as well um, that's yeah, so build the connection. Hmm. Yeah. All, All right. right. We'd like to thank you for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Uh, one more time, you can be found on Twitter at... Taste of Living. And same for Facebook? Same for Facebook. There was one other one, wasn't there? Uh, Roval Community Kitchen, which mm -hmm. is the kitchen program, are both on Twitter. Um, but they're also all across uh, Instagram as well. Nice. And as always, you can go to occasionallyinteresting.com and in the notes section, find all those links to your, to our guests' resources. <laughs> okay. uh, 
And again, we'd like to thank you for coming on today. Thank you. It's been great meeting you and having this long conversation. It was our pleasure. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.